Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from flatlining.net, and if we sound different, it's because we're in our world headquarters in Garner, North Carolina. And so I'm sitting across the table for once from our own president and CEO and economist, Ron Howard. Ron, welcome back to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, last week, we saw uh, an interesting thing happen in the courts regarding health care, and that was the dueling decisions by two different federal judges regarding uh, the abortion drug mifepristone. And as we get into this conversation, we want to make sure that we're not really we're not going to talk about the merits of whether or not it, you know, it's it's ethical or is, as some would not consider it health care, whether or not it's considered health care. But today we want to talk about uh, the law and the autonomy and authority of the Food and Drug Administration, which, as you know, approves different drugs. And I guess we'll start there, Ron. How does the drug approval process generally work? So the drug approval process with the FDA is that's the body that is supposed to look at all the available research, whether it's clinical trials data, usage data, um, that kind of stuff, to determine two things. One, is a drug safe? Um, Secondly, is it effective? And oftentimes those two things sort of play in a balance. So for example, there are many drugs that are approved that have some fairly significant potential side effects, but they're effective on what would be an even worse disease. So you you weigh the risk versus the benefits. And their determination is, should this drug be approved as both effective and safe, given the condition it's um, trying to treat? The first decision that came out was in Texas, and that was uh, alleging that the drug was not put through enough scrutiny and needed to be taken off the shelves and gave the FDA a week to do so uh, or to appeal. Uh, and in that case, they were referring to the um, the risk management program that F- the FDA has, which was not in place when mifepristone was approved in 2000. So how is it really right to be retroactively applying that to all drugs or is is it being do you think it's being singled out politically well i mean i think that this is a judge who has some obvious feelings about abortion and that's fine he has his right to those feelings and opinions like everybody else does and is using his position to make what is a very questionable ruling um he really has to go a long way in redefining standing. He actually pulls up a law, the Comstock Act from 1871, um, as a way to sort of get him to the ability to legally strip a drug from FDA approval. Um, And in the 67-page ruling, he talks about how the FDA failed to follow proper procedure to consider the safety of the drug. Um, You know, it brings up an awful lot of questions for me. One is, as a judge, what is his clinical judgment here, and, and what you know proper procedure did they fail to um, to follow? It also brings up some really strong questions about the facts of the safety of the drug and the data that we have on it. Um, and then finally, just what what barn door could this open of other judges being able to overrule the FDA in their their clinical judgment um, for certain things that they don't like? Mm-hmm. What was interesting, too, is the the dueling uh, ruling by a judge in Washington uh, looked more was said the FDA was too restrictive in their uh, and how in certain the regulations that are in place for this drug. Mm-hmm. So it's almost going in the other direction by saying the FDA is putting too many restrictions on a particular 
um, drug. And I'm curious what you make of that. Well, I, sir, I don't like the idea of any judge or, you know, any governor for that matter, anybody in an elected position sort of making what are really scientific clinical judgments. I don't think they're in the best position to do that in overruling the FDA. We have the FDA there for a reason. It is supposed to be, and, and I think largely is, a non-political clinical body that reviews scientific fact to make the best determinations for the general public. And once you start getting into playing politics with it or you know judicial advocacy, I think we run down a very dangerous, dangerous road. So, I mean, I disagree with the, the, the second ruling just as much as I disagree with the first. I don't think either judge has any place in making a ruling about safety and efficacy of a drug that the FDA ruled on over 20 years ago. Um, the other thing is, I mean, just look at the facts. First of all, um, one of the things that on a safety perspective drugs get measured on is the number of fatalities per million dose usage. Okay, The drug in question has a fatality rate of four per million. Penicillin has a fatality rate of 20 per million. Viagra has a, penalty, has a fatality rate of 49 per million. Tylenol has a fatality rate higher than this drug. Okay, so, you know, this isn't a scenario where the FDA said, oh, geez, it's right on the edge there. Um, I I don't think any clinician would argue the safety of the drug um, from that perspective. Now, the FDA is appealing the decision, uh, as is the Biden administration. Um, Both are appealing on on standing counts, as, as you just talked about. It's a little bit sketchy there. To determine who who's able to really take a lawsuit against the FDA about um, the safety of a drug, it's interesting. In recent years, and we've talked about before, the FDA has really been dragged into um, a lot of these political discussions. In particular, with the COVID nineteen vaccines, um, where is this going? Well, and that's a great question, um, and and not to get too you know, into the legal details. But the question of standing is going to be one that I think should be fairly easy for either the appellate court or the Supreme Court to throw this out. Um, Roughly speaking, in order to have standing, you have to be an injured party. Um, It would have been fairly obvious of standing if there was a female who had been injured by the drug or the, you know, the family of somebody who was one of the people who died from the drug. But it wasn't. There were no females attached to this. There were physicians. And the judge basically said they had standing because they may have to treat a woman who has been damaged by this drug in the future. Well, if that's the definition of standing, you could argue that for any drug, any treatment, any procedure, you know, any doctor could say, well, I may at some point in the future have to deal with this. Therefore, I have standing as sort of a pre-injured party, um, which is a is a really interesting sort of legal remedy, if you will. Now, where is this going? Well, I think that really depends on what happens in the appellate court and or Supreme Court. Hopefully, even in the appellate court, this will get struck down and will send the message that no, judges can't overrule the FDA. Because like you said, what would have happened if in the middle of COVID, uh, a physician would have said, an individual physician, hey, I'm going to have to treat somebody who was may have been injured by these vaccines and a federal judge ruled them all to be, you know, stripped of their FDA approval. What happens with somebody who wants to do that with pediatric immunizations? Are we going to go back to, you know, some of the days of whooping cough and polio? Um, What if you, and fill in the blank on whatever drug it is or whatever treatment or whatever procedure, 
um, that would create a pretty scary environment where an individual federal judge could basically decide health care availability to everybody on some pretty sketchy grounds, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Several years ago, you we had uh, the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress push uh, right to try. Um, do you think that this could change that in any particular way? Because those are all um, drugs that aren't if I recall, or don't have FDA approval, um, and they're used in experimental treatments. Does this have an effect on that? Um, I don't know that this has an effect on the because those drugs are not yet FDA approved. And, and what that push was, which I think is a separate issue to say, let's take a patient, what they're obviously talking about, patients who are in, in you know, very dire circumstances, you know, at the end of their life, and they're, they're reaching for straws. That, that premise was, shouldn't they have the right with full knowledge that this has not been proven yet, it could be dangerous, to sort of try um, and say, well, look, it's my life and I want to go ahead and take this drug even though I know it may not be effective and it may be dangerous, but I'm, I'm doing so with full knowledge and um, understanding and making a conscious choice. I think that's different than um, a judge saying you can't have access to this drug. Anyone, no one can, even if they want to. Um, I think that's sort of a different scenario. Now, this wasn't what the the plaintiffs were arguing in Texas, uh, but it's been raised. And I mentioned the risk management program that wasn't there when the drug was approved. If the argument is truly about safety, would it be easy to say, well, we can get we can make this go away by simply just running it through this process that we already have that we use for approving drugs now? Do you think that it's practical to do something like that? Or do you think that that um, it? Does it look badly on the drugs that they'd have to run through it? Well, so there, that raises an interesting question. There are a number of drugs out there right now that if they had to go through the FDA approval process now, probably wouldn't be approved. Okay. Um, the, the example that a lot of physicians talk about is lithium. You know, lithium was used for years and years to manage manic depressives. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredibly toxic drug. Um, and a lot of doctors would say, if you had to run that through today, it would never be approved. Um, so what do we do? Do we, do we take this new standard and run it against all these old drugs that have been used for years and years and years? I'm not sure that's really wise use of time. In this case, for this drug, most clinicians that, you know, that you listen to say this drug would pass with flying colors on the risk because again, we, it's been used quite a bit. We know what its risk profile is, you know, and somewhat that's just paperwork. It would be potentially very problematic to, to sort of retroactively apply all of this. Now, that being said, there is a process to take drugs that have been approved and that as more information gets gleaned about them to remove that approval. Mm-hmm. You look at um, the, the original weight loss drug, Fenfen. You know, it originally came out, it looked fine, everybody was using it, FDA approval. More and more information and usage information gained and then people realized it carried some cardiac risk. And it changed its approval process. So it's not like this stamp of approval is golden and it will never be changed um, because the FDA constantly looks at at that kind of new data and can be brought forward if doctors have concerns about it. And the fact that it hasn't been talked about really means that there probably hasn't been too much conversation about this drug at the FDA because it has been reasonably low risk. Exactly. I mean, like I said, it's it's got a fatality rate of four per million. I mean, penicillin. Five times the fatality rate. I don't hear anybody talking about outlawing penicillin. Okay. Um, I'm sure there are millions of men that don't want Viagra outlawed either, even though it has a, a higher um, fatality rate. Um, so it's, it's, 
I don't think that this was truly, in my opinion, about the safety of the drug. I think this was an activist judge who chose to find a very interesting route to reach a decision that he agreed with. Again, I respect his opinion. Um, you know, one of the things I think is is difficult, especially in this topic, is, you know, you get into something that people have high emotions with. And democracy and, you know, our form of legislation is messy. Um, I think there's, I, I've, I've, I've heard people have arguments over the Dodd ruling, whether it was good or bad. And I think those are valid arguments. What I've not heard is anyone have an argument that that wasn't the Supreme Court's role. Because what the Dodd ruling was is the Supreme Court deciding the difference between federal and state rights. That's at the core of what they do. So you can argue whether or not you think you agree with how the justices ruled, but you really can't argue that it wasn't in their wheelhouse. It's exactly what they were set to do. Uh, I think this is different in that you, there's a significant argument that this isn't what this federal judge was supposed to do. It's not in his wheelhouse. Um, because it wasn't really a decision about law. It was a decision about, you know, clinical safety and efficacy. And, you know, I don't I just don't think he's equipped to do that. And you have the same thing, really, with a judge in Washington oh, exactly. as well, yeah. just by saying, oh, well, this should be available in more instances and you shouldn't be having some of these these particular warnings on it. And so I guess going with that route, where do you think that could go if that becomes the, the norm, the legal standard? You know, I hope that both judges get their rulings overturned on appeal. I really do, because I think both rulings are wrong. And they're they're getting into an area where they really shouldn't be, you know, legislating from the bench, so to speak. Um, it's not their not their job. Um and, and I, you know, I mean, I, I'm assuming, but it, it'd be you'd have a hard time convincing me that the judge in Washington didn't do that ruling out of response to the judge in Texas. And said, fine, I, I believe strongly the other way, and I'm going to create a legal way to let my feelings be known. Um, and again, I think they're both equally wrong. To play a little bit of devil's advocate here to, and talk about how the FDA looks at safety and stuff, who polices the police in this instance? You know, who, who appeals, you know, a decision by the FDA? I mean, how does that get looked at by either safety advocates or drug manufacturers? You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, theoretically... Um, and I don't know that it's ever happened. If somebody believed the FDA was blatantly wrong on their decision on efficacy and safety, they can take them to, to court, if you will, through administrative law court. Um, I don't know that that's ever occurred. I, I've had a hard time um, ever finding a situation where, given the information they had presented to them at the time, that the vast majority of clinicians... Um, have disagreed with the FDA's rulings. Um, it's not one person like it was in the case of this judge. It's a committee of people. They tend to be experts in their field. Um, they tend to issue, if anything, you know, some clinicians will argue that they err on the side of conservatism and are slower to approve things than they otherwise should, mm -hmm. slower than some other countries do. But I think that's their commitment to having some reasonable assuredness of safety and like the example of the fenfen drug um they also as they get more information will change their position um which should science is evolving data you know is coming in with new data all the time and they shouldn't just you know stand on an old ruling and say well we've got new information we're not going to overturn that mm -hmm. 
And this isn't an instance where really we want Congress to get involved and be like, we're going to make the final say on this, because it, it, there have been instances where Congress has gotten involved either with Indian affairs or with the interstate highway system, where they decided to legislate that this highway is designated this way or that this tribe can do this and this. And it creates problems down the road because it's taking the authority away from those government agencies that are tasked with doing that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, what would happen if a federal judge decided that, you know what, Um, OSHA really isn't doing what they should do, and there is no more workplace safety rules, and we're just going to outlaw OSHA. Mm -hmm. Or the IRS is failing in their obligation, so, you know, all the tax returns for the last 10 years are now voided, or tax audits are now voided, and the federal government has to pay that money back. I mean, that last one might not be bad, but um, but but that's the point: is is it a judge's right to look at a at an entity, an agency that's been tasked with a job, and say, "I don't think you're doing your job as well as I would like you to do it," or "I don't think you're doing it the way I want you to do it," so I'm just going to overrule your ruling. Particularly when no one's been harmed in this instance. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, the standing thing I think is likely to be thrown out just on that because that's a really strong reach of of standing when somebody can say, I may in the future possibly be harmed by some interaction that hasn't happened yet that may, you know, I mean, that's really reaching pretty far as opposed to what most people consider legal standing is being able to say, I have been harmed Mm -hmm. or I am in imminent danger of being harmed and therefore you have to do some sort of a stay ruling. Otherwise, this will absolutely happen. You know, going before a judge and saying, you know, I, you know, do not let them foreclose on my house tomorrow because that is imminent and it's going to be in, in danger to me. That's different than saying, you know, there could be a time in the future when this might happen to me. So you better rule, you know, that I have standing now. Mm-hmm. I want to move on to one other uh, law issue, and it has to do um, with the state of California. We talked about California last week, I believe it was, it may have been the week before. And we talked about some of their things, including Governor Gavin Newsom's recent decision to uh, sever ties with Walgreens. Now, of course, he made the decision on Twitter. Twitter is not law, even in the state of California. If you put it on Twitter, that doesn't make it so. Uh, And he has learned that he may not be getting what he wants quite as quickly as he wants because of federal laws, uh, including one that says a state Medicaid program can't bar uh, patients from going to particular pharmacies. So I'm just curious what you think, what your reaction is now that uh, he's kind of had the, the ropes drawn back on him a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm actually um, pleased to see that he's, he's sort of getting his um, power in that position curtailed a little bit. Um, governor doesn't mean king. You know, government doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want to. You know, we're a nation of laws. We're a nation of federal and state constitutions. And a lot of them are put in place to protect, you know, the citizenry of a state or federal government from this kind of individual behavior. I mean, let's not forget, we, you know, we came here from a monarchy and that we didn't like the fact that one person, you know, could tell us what to do or not do. And so I'm kind of glad that it is being curtailed. Mm-hmm. I don't like the idea of a governor using their position to um, this way to potentially punish individual um, companies. It was almost laughable, too, when I read that uh, the state has invited Walgreens to come back and rebid for their uh, upcoming specialty pharmacy for the prisons, which Gavin Newsom also said they were cutting from. Yeah. I, again, I just... Um, and this isn't a, a right or left thing. I, either both sides do it, and when either side does it, I think it's wrong um, when people sort of overstep. 
and I think you know Gavin Newsom overstepped here. Well, he, at least when uh, either 2024 or 2026. Ron, thanks uh, for coming on. 2028 rolls around, he can say that he attempted to do what he thinks is the right thing, and uh, that pesky thing called federal law got in the way. Uh, finally, uh, just to throw at you real quick uh, before we go, CMS announced uh, today or yesterday, uh, from when we were recording this, that they are considering giving hospitals a nearly 3% pay increase for uh, inpatient care. Um, we shortly talked about this before the program, and uh, that's, uh, that's throwing pennies at someone who really needs uh, $100 bills, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, there are a lot of hospitals that I know of personally that are operating right now at operating losses. Mm-hmm. Um, that What's keeping them alive and afloat, if you will, is their reserves and the investment return they get on those reserves. That can only happen for a while. Um, and it's largely related to, what everybody, related to what everybody else is feeling, which is inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, since last June, so less than a year, the average base wage for a nurse has gone up by 9% in less than a year. And it was going up the year before. Um, hospitals have huge parts of their budget that are tied to nursing expenses, and they're paying more and more for that, paying more and more for supplies and for energy and all those things that the rest of us are. So, it, you know, the interesting thing is at least Medicare is acknowledging that they've got to throw some money at the problem or we're going to start to have rural hospitals fail. The concern I have about this is at the same time they're throwing money at the hospitals for a cost problem. They're still telegraphing a cut for physicians next year. Well, medical offices employ nurses too, and they employ supplies, and they they, you know, have to to buy energy to heat their offices, et cetera. So, I'm a little disconcerned by the dichotomy of that. I think it's good that Medicare is reflecting they're going to have to pay more to hospitals, but I'm worried that physicians still are being left on the other end of that. Um, also tied in with this is some of the Biden administration's um, goals regarding equity. They're adding 15 new equity categories for scoring some of these hospitals, um, including uh, how they treat patients for homelessness and, and race and other sorts of things. What do you think that adds or takes away from uh, hospitals and some of their expenses they're looking at right now? Well, you know, part of me wonders if... Um, if that's really necessary. Now, I know that there are people that will jump up and down and scream about social, social determinants of health. And so, and I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that there isn't um, significant differences in the way care is delivered based on socioeconomic position. What I'm saying is um, all hospitals probably need a pretty good bump. And um, rural hospitals maybe more than urban hospitals. So I think there are probably ways that are easier than what the Biden administration is proposing to make sure that we get the right resources to the right hospitals so that they don't fail or shut down service lines, et cetera. Um, I think it's a pretty convoluted and probably self-serving political um, approach to solving a problem that can be solved much easier. And finally, the COVID-19 public health emergency is ending in May. The new rule is clarifying that hospitals uh, won't be receiving add-on payments for new COVID-19 treatments uh, beginning in 2024. Too much of a takeaway from them? Well, you know, so obviously the COVID pandemic is significantly diminished. And so, you know, one begs the question, well, why do we still have, you know, um, additional payments for COVID when it really is not 
um, as prevalent as it was and significantly diminished. Um, personally, I think, you know, this is a pretty good step for a government to declare a program over. Um, this is a government that still has money being spent to the Tennessee Valley Authority to electrify, you know, part of the middle parts of the country. I think we pretty much all have electricity. Um, now, it doesn't set aside that there are needs with these hospitals for resources in other areas. So I would have, you know, I'm in favor of them sort of getting rid of the pandemic, you know, emergency situation, all that funding. But they should probably put that funding in somewhere else for right. for the inflationary situation of the post-COVID economy. That about does it for time for us today on the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, as always, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. You can subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howard, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.